Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. We are continuing our series on the book of Philippians, and this morning we're going to take a deeper look into the last three verses of the passage that we read last week. It's simply too rich to pass on and to go forward. And so if you would join with me and read along as I read aloud Philippians 3 verses 8 through 11. This is God's word. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, this is God's word. I'll just pray for a brief moment before we dig in. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with meditation of all of our hearts here together this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, as redeemer, open the eyes of our hearts so that we could see you correctly. And therefore, our hearts would sing. What we need most this morning is we need to see you. We need to really see you. And if we do, we will change. And you will get glory. And that's our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the author, Seth Godin, has a theory. He has a lot of theories, if you're familiar with his work. One of his theories is this. He believes that people are either cogs or linchpins. Do you know what a linchpin is? A linchpin literally holds a wheel on an axle. And so we have in our garage a training wheel set that used to not work because we were missing this tiny little linchpin. It's indispensable. And it's a great metaphor. It's a great metaphor, I have to admit. Uh, We have... uh, we all want to be a linchpin. Linchpins are indispensable. And, and Godin, Seth Godin, he wants you, a mere cog, to be a linchpin. That's his goal. And that's his book. And Godin's theory is super attractive to me, if I'm honest. And it must be to others, too, because it's his fastest-selling book. Who wants to be a cog, right? Who wants to be a cog? I don't want to see a hand. We all want to be indispensable. We all want to be a linchpin. Who doesn't want to be a linchpin? We want to be the person who holds everything together. Well, according to the passage that we just read, Philippians 3, that was the Apostle Paul. After all, he said in the passage we read last week, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He gave a litany of his resume, of his accomplishments. And he is, in essence, saying, this is how I used to think. I was not a cog. I was a linchpin. But Paul encounters Jesus. And after that encounter, he sees that Jesus is the true linchpin. Jesus holds everything together. Everything will fall apart without Jesus. He is the center of it all. And Paul now knows this, which is why he cries out in verse 8 and verse 9 of the passage we just heard. He said, I count everything, everything 
a liability or a loss. All that I thought was an asset in my life, I now count as a liability. And I count them as, as we said last week, porta potty sewage. That's how I count it. That's how I regard it now. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ. Jesus is the linchpin for Paul. And he's writing this letter from prison to a normal group of people like you and me, arguing and saying, you know what, for you, Jesus is the linchpin. The Irish poet William Butler Yeats, he wrote, things fall apart and the center cannot hold. Things fall apart and the center cannot hold. Only Jesus holds it together. You are made for Jesus. And if he is not the center, you will spin out of control. It's like a gyroscope. Without Jesus as a certain stable center, it doesn't matter how good you are. You will spin out of control. He must be the linchpin. He is the center of your orbit. Well, the good news of this passage is that you can have that balance that you were made for. Because what is true is we tend to put everything else in the center of our gyroscopic orbit. Think of something you're tempted to do to spin around, to give you stability. To, what is your linchpin, in other words? What is the thing that you lean on, that you think without this, everything will fall apart? What is indispensable in your life? What is it that if you lost it, you would be totally crushed? What is it that if you gained it, you think life would be magically better? Everything would snap together. These are false linchpins. They cannot hold the center. And Paul is saying, only Jesus can hold that center. Only Him. And the good news of this passage is that You can gain Christ. You can be found in Christ. And that can be true of you. And if you believe in Jesus, if your trust is in Jesus, if you are a Christian, that is true of you. You are in Christ. You have been found in Christ. You have gained Christ. He becomes our center. And we are in a mysterious way enfolded into his center. That's the mystery of union with Christ. And that's what is unpacked for us this morning in our text. Jesus is the linchpin. And the good news of the gospel is that we are connected to or united to that linchpin. And that makes sense, therefore, that union with Jesus has to be the most central truth in the Bible. If Jesus is the central linchpin of all reality, then being united to Jesus must be the most central truth in all of Scripture in all of your lives. And that's what Paul is claiming this morning. We are hidden in Christ. We are united to Christ. We have gained Christ. We are found in Christ. Look at verse 9. And be found in Him. And then he goes on and he spells out what I think are two of the most important implications of being found in him, having him as a linchpin and being connected to him, the linchpin. The first is that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you are made right with God. 
And the second one is that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you have new life with God. And we're going to look at each in turn this morning. So if you again, in verse 9, if you continue, it says, And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this verse tells us that it is possible to be righteous in God's eyes. To not just have what some have called a relative righteousness. Relative with regard to our neighbor, relative with regard to others. No, we have a true, perfect righteousness. It is possible. But Paul says it is impossible by yourself. But you can be right with God in Jesus. How so? Well, because of his representation and because of his righteousness. Those two things. To be right with God, you need Jesus to represent you. That's so critical. The Bible makes so much of representation, which is hard in a culture of expressive individualism, which is the cultural moment we all live in. We all live in a moment where to express yourself is to be true and to be an individual is to be true. But the Bible speaks of reality of representation. The most important question about your identity is not sexuality. The most important question about your identity is not politics. It's not nationality. The most important question about your identity is this. Who represents you? Who are you, to use biblical language, who are you in? Who are you in? And the Bible is very clear, and Paul spells this out in Romans 5, that there are two people, people who are in Adam and people who are in Adam number 2, Adam the Christ, the second Adam. It really is that simple, and it really is that binary. You are either represented by Adam, which is sin and death and condemnation, Or you are represented by Jesus, the second Adam, which is life and resurrection and new creation. How do you have him as your representative? Well, Paul says in verse 9, that which comes through faith in Christ. You simply lay hold of him with empty hands. And that's what faith brings. He becomes your representative. But to be right with God, you also need Jesus's righteousness, not just his representation, but his righteousness. The most important word in this verse, in my opinion, is the word from in verse nine to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes what from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. So there are two righteousnesses on offer here. There is a righteousness from the law. And Paul says, this is my righteousness. This is my righteousness. This is what I do by obeying the law. But there is another righteousness that's not from the law. That's not from me. There's a righteousness that is from God. And this righteousness from God is what is called an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of you. Whose is it? Well, who obeyed the law perfectly? The second Adam. 
Who is representing you? The second Adam. It's Jesus' righteousness. Remember, he obeyed the law in its positive sense and its negative sense. Not only did he perfectly obey God in what the law commands, but he perfectly obeyed the law in what the law prohibits. And he perfectly obeyed the law not just with his actions, he perfectly obeyed the law with his attitudes. He was the most loving person to ever live because he was God and man. Which is an amazing thing. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, which makes him righteous. And Paul says, when we place our faith in him, we are given that perfect record. This was a light bulb moment for me when I was in college and when I was suffering this roller coaster of pride and despair. Are you familiar with this? You'll have a week where you're doing well according to your standards. And then you have a week where, and so you're feeling good. And then you have a week where you just, you fail. And you're feeling miserable. And it's this roller coaster. And I heard someone say, did you know that Jesus did not just die for you, but that he lived for you? That his perfect obedience was given to you. And when you laid hold of Jesus with empty hands of faith, he not only represents you, but his righteousness is credited to your Bankrupt account. You see, I used to always think that Jesus came to the world to take my bankrupt account and bring it to zero so that I can then add money to it with my obedience. But the truer picture is that Jesus came to not just take care of your debt, which he does on the cross, but he also gives you a perfect righteousness. He fills your account with what he has done in your place. This is the great exchange. We give Jesus our sin. And in exchange for that, he gives us his righteousness. Author Brian Croft, he tells this great story about how he asked his kids after dinner to give him their dirty napkins. In exchange for them giving him their dirty, torn, messy napkins, he gave them shiny coins. We give God our sin. We give God even our best acts of obedience. And relative to his holiness, they are dirty napkins. And what does he give in replace? No. What does he give in exchange? He gives us the righteous record of Jesus. Are you hearing this? <laughs> this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. That means if you are in Christ, you are right with God. That's what it means. If you are in Christ, you are right with God. I think that is the question beneath every question of identity. How can I stand before God in rightness? And the answer is you can't unless Jesus stands in front of you and gives you his record. That's amazing. I think there's two implications how this impacts us on a day-to-day basis. And the first is this. You will have a new confidence. When you are declared right with God, you don't have to hide or prove yourself to anyone, including God, anymore. What a freedom. God sees all of you, and He loves all of you. 
the gavel has been thrown down by the judge. And he says, not guilty. More than that, righteous in my sight. And it's been declared once and for all. The verdict is in. You have a confidence in that truth. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. It gives you a confidence. And yet, on the other hand, you have a new humility. You have a new humility. When you are declared right with God, you become humble at the same time as you become confident. You don't boast in your accomplishments. Like Paul in this passage before, he says, look, I have every reason to boast, but I'm going to boast in Christ instead of what I have done. I mean, how could you boast in yourself after you know that you are declared right because of what Christ has done, not because of what you have done? How could you boast? There's no room for boasting, Paul says, when that is the truth. If that is the most true thing about you, you are represented by the perfect one, Jesus, and you have the perfect one's righteousness. When that is the most true thing about you, your self-righteousness must melt away. There's no more room for it. You talk less at dinner parties. Or at least you listen better. (laughs) You stop proving yourself to your colleagues. Or your children. Or your spouse. You don't get offended easily. You are loving to your neighbors who don't know Jesus. You are loving to your neighbors who do love Jesus and drive you crazy. (laughs) You stop othering people. That are not like you. Because you know. That you are not morally better than them. It humbles you. And many have made this point. And I'll make it again. That this blend of confidence and humility. Is the hallmark of true spirituality. Because if we depend to think about it on our own righteousness, we would be overconfident and we'd be proud. Or, if we're more honest with ourselves, we would be totally despairing. Because we would see that there's no possible way that I can measure up. And so we would go on this roller coaster, as I described earlier, that so characterized my early walk with Jesus, of just this ugly pride, self-righteousness. On the one day. And then the very next day. I can just be like woe is me. I suck. I'm terrible. What do I need to do. To get right with God again. Instead if you're in Christ. Then you just have. A rest. So that's amazing. That's the first sort of implication. Or sort of outflowing reality. Of being united to the linchpin. The second one is amazing also. In verse 9, as we just read, uh, Paul says, you have been made right with God. So the next question that some of you might have then is, why obey Him? Why follow the Lord? I don't know, as I was thinking about it, it would be sort of like a college professor saying, you have an A plus on your final exam, but here's the thing, I'm going to have my TA do the final exam for you. So would you study? 
That's, that's sort of the question you start to have in your mind when you think, okay, I'm, I'm declared righteous by what Jesus has done, so why follow him? Why follow him? And if you are having that question, it's proof that you are wrestling with just how upside down the gospel is. Well, Paul gives us three powerful reasons to obey in light of our being declared right in verse 10 and 11. Those three reasons are this. Your old self is dead. We'll start with that one. So verses 10 through 11 is one cohesive thought if you take a look at the text. And it's like a sandwich. There's sandwich buns on both sides and then there's meat in the middle. And the buns of this passage is resurrection. If you take a look. You can see it in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, if you skip over the meat, you'll see the next verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection, resurrection. Now, what's in between? Death and suffering. Okay? So what we have to understand is that Paul... Let's, take a, let's just focus on the meat in the middle first. Paul is saying here that you share or you have partnership... And I may share, it says in verse 10, his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. An implication of being united to the linchpin Jesus is being united to everything that he is, which includes his death. 2,000 years ago. So let me put it in plainest terms possible. When Jesus Christ was crucified over 2,000 years ago, there was... If Google was around, there was a GPS point where that happened. This is not theory. This happened in history. When Jesus was crucified on the cross 2,000 years ago, I want you to listen. If you are in Christ, you too were crucified with Him. I know. I know. But it's true. Which means that your old self, along with the old Adam, has been crucified. Which means that your habits that you know are wrong, they're dead. They've been crucified. Which means that your old track record, it's gone. It's dead. Your sin patterns, dead. Crucified. Your old self is dead. So that's one of the first things that helps us understand, okay, this is why I obey. There's another one, though. If we move to verse 11, we see that when we are united to his death, we are also united to his resurrection. We are united to the resurrected Jesus, which means that not only is our old self dead, but our future self is alive. This is incredible. We have a new horizon in Christ. We are not trapped into a despair. You know, as one person put it, the battery doesn't just go out when you die. We have a future promise of resurrection. Our future self is alive. If our old self is dead, our future self is alive. Well, where does that take our present self? What does that mean for us today? If our old selves are dead and our future selves are alive. Well, verse 10 says this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
So verse 10 says that the future resurrection power is given to us today. Because we are united to a resurrected Jesus, we have, even today, resurrection power. We can, as I like to think of it, we can have previews, real previews of resurrection in our life and in our communities. Perfection? No. Not till Jesus returns. Substantial? Yes. We can see new life cropping out. In a a, a few months, we're going to start seeing green popping out of our yards. That's how I view it. We're going to see something like we have a tree. I don't know what kind of tree it is, but it's pretty. It's right by our, our kitchen window. And it always is the first to bloom. We can start seeing things like that in our lives. Whenever you say no to that lie that you're going to tell, and you tell the truth instead, whenever you say no to that habit, do you know what that is? That's a bud of new creation cropping out in you. That's what that is. It's a preview. Whenever we as a community lean hard into Jesus and his ways, and when we see just stuff that's happening in this community that we cannot do on our own, that is new creation in a dying world. I love podcasts. I don't know if you know this about me. I know a lot of people out there do. Uh, and one of my favorites, I have a lot of favorites, is Brian Koppelman's The Moment. If you don't know who that is, he's a screenwriter and he shares about his craft. And it's full of insight and wisdom and humility. And he constantly refers to this moment in his creative life where he came alive as an artist. It's when he read a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And you can tell... By the way he talks, you can tell by the podcast and the interviews he does that the principles of that book live in him. Well, I say this with no disrespect to him or to Julie Cameron. But what sets Christianity apart from this is that principles do not live in us. A person does. We are united to Christ. He is risen. And he lives in you. That is the good news of the gospel. The resurrected Jesus is empowering us by his Holy Spirit. This means two things. It means a lot of things. I'm going to focus on two. The first is this. You have a new way to grow in the Christian life. You have a new way to grow. You have a new way to become more fully human. It's like this. To any struggle or setback, you can say, that is not the true me. To any sin, you can say. To any addiction, you can say, that is not true of me. I am in Christ. That was crucified 2,000 years ago. Do you see how that changes the terms of engagement? It totally changes it. Do you see how that removes shame from you when you fall into sin again? How that removes shame from you? You can say to that sin, that is not true of me. I am in Christ. That is what is true of me. 
So now, growth is a matter of becoming who you are in Christ. It's a totally different ballgame. My true self is not held captive to lust, to lying, to belittling. My truest self is in Christ. I have resurrection power. Number two, this means something else. This means you have a new way not just to grow, but you have a new way to dream. A new way to look forward. I learned this week that according to the psychologist Marcus and Nurius, uh, healthy people have and form possible selves. I'll say that one more time. Healthy or mature people form possible selves. So when you stop forming a possible Joe Hack, when I stop forming a possible Joe Hack, I start to spiral down. But when you form a possible self, you grow in health. So every time you walk into the gym, every time you enroll in a class, every time you go on a diet, perhaps, every time you read a book, you are leaning into a possible self, aren't you? Well, in Christ... We have more than a possible self. We have a promised self. Do you realize that in Christ, when He returns, we will be without sin. All of our desires will be good. Do you realize that? And so we don't just have some theoretical possible self that we can lean into. If you are a Christian in Christ, you have a future glory self to lean into that you know is coming down the pipe. It's just a matter of time when Jesus comes back. And so that changes everything. Eric Johnson, he says that when we have a secure possible self, which we do in Christ, it helps us, listen to this, consent our current struggles, to accept them, to face them. As one person puts it, we, we can kiss those demons. That is impossible if you do not have a secure possible self. Do you see? You either hide from your problems or you ignore your issues. Or you just completely despair and give up. But if you have a secure future self, which you do in Christ, then you can now face them. You can consent them. Why is that important? Well, it means that you now in this life are neither totally optimistic because you know death and suffering. United to Christ, you are united to his death. You are united to his suffering. But neither can you be completely pessimistic because resurrection is just a matter of time. Cornell West, he says it this way. He says, pessimism and optimism are the flip sides of the same coin. Let's reject that coin. What's left? I think a new coin, and that new coin is called hope. That new coin is called hope. Bruce Springsteen says the best songs are the ones that have blues in the verses and gospel in the chorus. That is our lives. Blues in the verses, gospel in the chorus. We are a weird admixture of consenting suffering and yet hoping for resurrection. 
of facing struggles and yet not giving up the hope that Jesus is returning and in Him we too will rise. Well, that is our lives in Christ. That changes everything. Friends, we are not the linchpin. Do you see it now? Jesus is the linchpin. Everything holds together in Him. And what's most important is that you be found in Him. That you be found in Him. And how does that happen? You lay hold of Him with needy, empty hands.